I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. There are different kinds of lobster. You know this, right? You've seen Blue Planet. There are those colorful, tropical, spiny lobsters that don't have claws. There are scampi, which are actually technically tiny lobsters. There are slipper lobsters that look like a shoe. There are furry lobsters that look furry. The red ones that you find at the grocery store or in traps off the coast of Maine. They're American lobsters. But there's also a European lobster, and they look almost identical. They're maybe a little smaller, have thicker shells, and are a slightly different color. And when you're a lobster expert, people bring you all sorts of weird-looking lobsters, and it's just a normal part of the job. Uh, it's usually just leisure fishermen or commercial fishermen that say, oh, this is a funny-looking lobster, odd-looking lobster. What can this be? So a fisherman would just come into the office at the, at the university and say, yeah. hey, I found this. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> yeah. Basically, <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> what do you think? Mm, yeah, this was a funny one. This is Anne Lisbeth Agnalt, a scientist at the Norwegian Institute for Marine Research. Usually, up in Norway, fishers are bringing her really purple lobsters, which is a color that large female European lobsters take on when they've been living very far offshore. And usually, she just reassure them. Oh no, this is okay. This is a this is a purple one. They do Have you been fishing a little bit on, you know, outskirts area now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. But in 1999, she got something different. European lobsters are typically a certain color. Black in coloration, but they also come in like blue and also in uh, purple some of them. But this lobster, would be more reddish, greenish. Immediately, Anne Elizabeth was like, "Hmm. Uh, sometimes you do get some odd-looking ones, but 
uh, not that odd. Alarm bells are going off in her head. But to verify what they had found, took a DNA test. DNA is really, uh, really, that's a 100% method. When the test came back, it confirmed what she had suspected. This was an American lobster. It was the American part of the name that was immediately the concern. A lot of times you'll hear place names prefixed onto species names that are invasive. The European green crab, Dutch elm disease, Japanese knotweed. This tells you that at least these species are out of place. It's non-native. So when a fisherman dropped this American lobster off at the lab, Anne Lisbeth was immediately thinking, might these lobsters actually be something worse? Might they outcompete, outperform, and outsurvive their dark-shelled European cousins? Maybe American lobsters would even breed with the Europeans, but the offspring would be sterile, like mules. This would mean that even though they were breeding, the population would decline. At first, she and the other Scandinavian scientists were worried, but not necessarily freaked out. One rogue lobster didn't really prove much of anything. But over the years, a few more American lobsters started turning up. It took a decade to get the full freakout stage. We looked at her and we said, oh no, this is American lobster. And then I looked at the eggs and I said, oh oh. And then my colleague was actually, I don't want to hear anything of you, oh oh. Uh, so she went straight to the lab <laughs> and ran the analysis. And she came back and said, I definitely didn't like your OO. <laughs> what Anne Lisbeth had been handed was something she was afraid of, but thought it was really unlikely she would ever be lucky enough to find. A female American lobster with eggs that had been fertilized by a European lobster. She had found a clutch of hybrids. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And today, we have a question. American lobsters are living in Scandinavian waters, luring away male European lobsters and making babies. This is a fact. But how to respond to that fact is a matter of huge consequence. Millions of dollars of exports hang in the balance. And all of this rests on a crucial question. Can we tell the difference between an invasive species and a regular old non-native species? Do we think we know enough to spot an invasion before it's too late? Let's clear this up right at the start. There is a big disagreement over whether American lobsters are, in fact, invading Europe. To date, in all of Europe, there have been around 100 American lobsters discovered. Hardly an army. Everyone agrees that all of them were clearly escaped from tanks somewhere and weren't born in the wild. Some even still had rubber bands around their claws when they were found. Only three of them have been found that have hybrid eggs. But for sure, scientists see the potential for a total catastrophe. And so they've been doing science to try to figure out what's the risk. Anne Lisbeth hatched those hybrid eggs that came in the door, 10,500 lobster larvae. 
And of all of those thousands, 65 are still alive and creeping their way towards maturity. So far, Anne Lisbeth has been testing the males. She's checking their sperm counts using a technique called electro-ejaculation, trying to see if they have what it takes to reproduce in the wild using electrodes. So we put uh, the red on one side and black on the other side of where the opening is, where the spermatophore is. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Not too much bzz, just a little bit of pleasant bzz. A little tickle. Yeah, a tickle, a tickle. And this is a method developed by American scientists. I I don't doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) So far, her results are inconclusive. They aren't producing much sperm. It might be that even seven years after being born, they still aren't quite mature yet. Or it could be that they're actually sterile. No matter what she discovers, Anne Lisbeth thinks there's reason to be worried. The Scandinavians have already decimated their own lobster stocks through overfishing. So whether there's actually a breeding population of American and hybrid lobsters out there pushing around the diminished European population, muscling them out of the best protective rocky crevices, or if they're just sterile and wandering around out there as false targets for the Europeans' breeding efforts. Either way, it's bad for the native lobsters. Suzanne Erickson is a Swedish scientist at the University of Gothenburg. She also has a clutch of hybrid lobsters that she has been rearing in a quarantine tank. Um, So worst case scenario is that we lose lobster production completely. That's the absolute worst case scenario. Since that first clutch of hybrids came in, there's been nearly a decade of research. And then, starting in 2014, American lobsters started to show up in traps more consistently. And the Scandinavians got really serious about this threat. It was the Swedes that got the ball rolling. They wrote a report that concluded that the American lobster was a high-risk species and that imports should be banned. The Americans were less than thrilled. So when when you first heard about this idea that that Sweden wanted to ban live lobster imports, what was the response from the industry? You've got to be kidding me. Um, I mean, it's that was the initial reaction, and then it was, how do we deal with this? Annie Sleekis, president of the Maine Lobster Dealers Association. She says, before we ring the alarm bells over a couple of pregnant lobster, we have to ask, How exactly are they crossing the ocean? She says no, they did not walk or swim over. Likely they came by airplane. Europeans really love lobster and they are willing to pay a premium to get it. And they're coming out of facilities like this one. It's a totally unremarkable building in an industrial park in York, Maine. There were these two medium-sized swimming pools packed with submerged crates. So if you are on a plane from Boston Logan to Paris, France, or to Dubai, or to Shanghai, there's a very, very good chance that there are lobsters riding with you in the cargo hold. So not snakes on a plane. Not snakes on a plane, lobsters on a plane. This is particularly true if you're headed to Dubai. And he says Emirates actually increased the number of flights between Boston and the UAE to accommodate the lobster shipments. And yes, apparently, as long as their gills are kept moist, they can survive for days or even weeks out of the water. And this whole process is tight. 
The lobsters leave this facility in boxes, on pallets, wrapped in shrink wrap, and wrapped in a special TSA tape to ensure that they haven't been tampered with. They cannot get out on their own. Clearly, the lobsters are escaping once they get to Europe. How? It might be that after buying them, some people are putting them into illegal floating cages out in the ocean to keep them fresh, and they escape from those. There have also been a couple of high-profile instances of Buddhists or animal rights activists buying hundreds of American lobsters and releasing them as an act of compassion, only to get fined afterward. But if you ask Aunt Lisbeth, anyone who's letting these lobsters out shares one trait. Stupid people, whether they release them on purpose or they release them by chance, they think they are dead and then they are not or if they keep them in some kind of containers in the ocean and then there is a hole in this container and then they escape. I mean, there are a whole bunch of scenarios. So, because of stupid people, Annie Sleekus and the American lobster industry were looking at, overnight, losing $150 million of exports a year. 20% of live lobster exports go to Europe. And so the Americans are basically like, hey, Europe, the problem is clearly on your end, so just get your house in order. But also, more to the point, they said, even if there are Buddhists tossing hundreds of them into the ocean, we just can't believe that this invasion could ever actually happen. When you think about invasive species, they're typically ones that reproduce really quickly and efficiently, and lobsters are the antithesis of that. In response to the Swedes' risk assessment, they called out the cavalry. One of the scientists who they asked to give feedback was Bob Stenick. He's a lobster researcher at the University of Maine. And I am uh, hawkish about the language we use. Uh, that is, uh, this, this non-native species has been found in those waters. Uh, this has not been demonstrated to meet even the minimum criteria of being invasive. Let's just reflect for a moment on two words, non-native and invasive. I think a lot of people probably have a negative association with both words, but I'd also be willing to go a step further. I think a lot of people actually conflate the two words. And that's a mistake. For instance, tomatoes, non-native, but also definitely not invasive. On the other hand, ivy or wisteria or bittersweet or any number of other common garden plants, invasive. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of non-native introductions do not succeed. In other words, for every invasive bug or fish, there are tons of animals that just can't hack it in the new environment. Just as an example, maybe you've heard about the scourge of the invasive zebra mussel, which came over from Europe in the ballast water of ships. The total cost of the zebra mussel invasion is estimated to be $3.1 billion over 10 years. Hearing that might lead you to believe that ballast water is just teeming with foreign invaders trying to explode into our waters. But About two decades ago, a guy named Jim Carlton uh, down in, in Connecticut, Mystic Seaport, uh, he's, a, he's an expert on this. He went and looked at ballast water in ships. Uh, in one of his uh, studies, he identified 10,000 species in the ballast water. Now, one or two possibly could be invasive. The point here is not that invasive species are no big deal, because they are. It's a significant problem. It's just that we have a really hard time knowing what's going to be an invasive species before the invasion actually begins. And assuming that every non-native bug or plant or crustacean is going to be a plague with massive impacts on ecosystems just isn't correct.
So, we know that American lobsters are escaping in Europe. What's the evidence that they're not only going to survive, but reproduce, and that the larva will thrive and that the American lobster will start to take over? Back in the early 1900s, Bob Stenick says people saw the prospects of an American lobster invasion very differently. The thinking back then was... That uh, this is an amazing species, and we should strive to propagate it all over the world. And entrepreneurial Americans set about trying to make this happen. Many operations uh, sprouted up. They started actively introducing hundreds of lobsters all over the world, like British Columbia, Bodega Bay, California, France, Italy. Hundreds were also released accidentally in Ireland, Japan, and other places. And every time, American lobsters failed to get themselves established. And uh, it was really kind of surprising that a species that is so abundant in the western North Atlantic, that's on our coast, seemed uh, incapable of self-reproduction uh, outside of its native range. Is Europe going to ban live lobster imports? We'll find out after a break. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. To recap, a couple of American lobsters have turned up in Scandinavia with hybrid American-European lobster babies prompting concern that an invasion is underway. But American scientists point out that over the years, we've had all sorts of people try to get lobsters to invade in other waters, and it has never worked. A hundred American lobsters caught in Europe over 10 years? Bob Stenick says this is not an invasion. And it's expert testimony like this that the fishing industry gathered to make their case. Maine's whole congressional delegation signed a letter saying that there's no way that the lobster is invasive. The State Department got involved. Canadian fishing regulators wrote in supporting the American position. But the Swedes, they aren't buying it. Last year, unfortunately, a hybrid clutch was caught in Sweden. So they are clearly reproducing in our waters. That's Suzanne Erickson again. Her point is that just because lobsters haven't thrived and taken over in other places at other times doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. Sure, in the past, Americans haven't gotten a foothold. 
But things are different now. Now Europe's population has crashed in some places, leaving a hole in their ecological niche that something else could fill. Now global trade might mean that there are hundreds, even thousands being released each year, but we just don't know. And remember that every female, she carries tens of thousands of eggs. And also, she says, just because a few dozen have been caught in each country, that means nothing. Let's remember, at first, finding an American lobster in Europe was super rare. But since 2014, they're caught annually, every year. So although they're not that many adults, uh, they are reproducing both with with American offspring and with hybrid offspring. What do you want to wait for here? Do we wait until they're finding live juveniles out in the wild, a clear sign that Europeans are reproducing and succeeding in Europe? Do we wait until there are adult, hybrid, European-American lobsters coming into the traps? Suzanne argues that at that point, it would be too late. An invasive population would already be getting itself underway. This debate is not really about lobsters, in my personal opinion. It's about uncertainty and what we should do in the face of it. There's this idea that environmentalists like to cite, something called the precautionary principle. It says that when there's something that we can do and we don't really know what the impact could be, the safest course of action is to do nothing. In Europe, this is a much more popular idea than here in the U.S., and it was the guiding philosophy that led the EU to ban genetically modified crops in the late 90s. And when you read the EU's American lobster risk assessment, it specifically says that it relies on the precautionary principle to come to its conclusion that imports should be banned. American regulators, on the other hand, don't really go for this idea. We tend to prefer straight-ahead cost-benefit analysis. Knowing what we know, do the downsides outweigh the upsides? The European philosophy gives a lot more deference to the incompleteness of human knowledge. It assumes that our cost-benefit analysis is going to be flawed, imperfect, that it could be missing some big downsides. But a lot of Americans, like Bob Stenick, will tell you that the way the Europeans implement the precautionary principle leads to a kind of status quo bias. Like, new things are seen as risky, but decisions that might be equally risky but were made a while ago are seen as okay. Like, say, letting ships release 10,000 non-native species every time they flush their ballast water. And you want to say, well, maybe we should just stop uh, shipping lobsters to Europe. Then I think uh, that level of caution should actually also apply to shipping. So you should actually stop ships from coming out from outside Europe if you really want to have zero chance of anything non-native from arriving. I don't think they're going to do that. Right. But I'm just saying, um, you know, if you want to raise the precautionary principle, then I think you should be fair about what the risks are for every ship that's coming into your waters. Right. There's like like the precautionary principle, if if followed to its logical conclusion. Right would lead us to just building walls around the borders of all the continents. That's right. And Scandinavia is going to pay for it. <laughs> In the end, delegations from all the EU countries met behind closed doors and hashed it out. And behind those closed doors, they took a vote. Annie Sleekis heard about the outcome after it happened. 
I actually was in the process of doing a story with a reporter from the Financial Times, and the reporter was the one that called me and said, you guys are, you're good. <laughs> Which just sort of felt anticlimactic. Like there should be, there should have been a vote, like, right, like, like on live TV. Yeah, exactly. There should have been something, like where's my C-SPAN? Thanks, in part, to a massive show of force from the Americans and Canadians that included scientific rebuttals from Bob Stenick and others, the ban was voted down. According to the Swedish delegate, the Europeans agreed that the American lobster was likely invasive, but given the economic impact a ban would have, they decided to vote no for the time being. The precautionary principle might feel like a coherent philosophy, but when there's real money at stake, it becomes clear that it's not immune to politics and economics. If you are at a seafood restaurant in Paris or in Brussels or in Spain and you get a seafood tower, which is a very common thing to have, it always has lobster from North America on that tower. All of this has sent the Scandinavians back to the drawing board. Suzanne Eriksson, the Swedish scientist, says that the next project she's going to try to get funding for is to see if she can detect live American or hybrid lobster larvae out in the ocean. This would be super hard, because after they hatch, lobster are tiny little plankton-sized critters for a couple of years, and while there might be tens of thousands when they first come out, they are tasty, bite-sized ocean snacks, and very, very few of them survive for very long. But if she did find larvae, that's when the alarm bells would really start to go off in her mind. Yeah, that's when you know that it's established, you know, because we already know that they survive and we know that they reproduce. But once you have recruitment and they start to add up in numbers, then you have establishment, uh, which means that it's invasive. And it doesn't, you know, you have to remember that these are very long-lived animals. So when you look at a, a species that reproduces very quickly, because that's, that has been one argument that, you know, they, they have to, like, explode in numbers. Uh, but that takes a, a, quite a long time for long-lived animals. So, um, so I hope that, we're, that, it's, that it can be fixed. That's what I really hope. But I'm not sure about that. When I asked Bob Stenick about Suzanne's plan, he said, good luck. It's a needle in a haystack. And uh, they have a much, much bigger haystack over there. He says in his mind, finding larvae in the open ocean would move the needle, but still wouldn't be conclusive proof that lobsters could invade. He'd want proof that those larvae could survive to be adults and then reproduce again. To, to, to make the case that, um, that the lobster is invasive requires that they are reproducing and not seeing reproduction, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not happening. Right, right, but it right. just hasn't been detected. Yeah. Um, Especially in the vastness of the ocean. It's, it's like hard to tell what the hell's going on down there. No, that's right. And, uh, you know, there are still people who believe in Sasquatch, too. So um, <laughs> you, do, you do have to be realistic and say, well, we've looked enough to say that this is probably not an issue. Um, but, uh, you know, I certainly have never been in favor of stopping uh, the investigation. But when you're comparing people to Sasquatch hunters, you're clearly being pretty dismissive of their argument. 
And this is what's crazy about this debate. Let's just think about what it would take to get either side to change their mind. Bob's definition of the point where you start to get concerned, larvae surviving into adulthood and reproducing, is the Scandinavian's definition of an invasion already in progress. So, if the Swedes succeed in getting live lobster imports banned next time around, they'll think that they've stopped a disaster, but the Bob Stenics of the world will always think it was overkill. Basically, the only way to settle this debate for sure would be to do nothing and see what happens. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby, Erica Janik, Hannah McCarthy, Maureen McMurray, Justine Paradise, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Thanks to Sophia Brockmark, Patrick Whittle, and Wynne Watson for helping to get the facts of this story straight, and for lots of hilarious lobster trivia. If, by the way, you are interested in learning more about this story, including some of the hilarious details of lobster sex, you should check out our website, outsideinradio.org. If you've never been there, by the way, we've got a written version of every one of these stories that you can share with friends and family who are not quite so audio inclined. And hey, if they like it, they might just start listening to podcasts. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, the Marion Circle Drum Brigade, and Poddington Bear. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.